Welcome to Content Pros Podcast, where we unlock the strategies and secrets of the best content marketers in the world and ask the questions you've always wanted asked. Content Pros is sponsored by Convince and Convert, content marketing strategy advisors and counselors to leading brands and organizations worldwide. Convince and Convert makes your content better. Oracle Marketing Cloud, helping businesses use the latest marketing technologies to tell their stories and connect with their customers. And by Uberflip, a content experience platform that allows marketers to create, manage, and optimize tailored content experiences for every stage of the buyer journey. Now, here are your hosts from Oracle Marketing Cloud, Chris Moody, and from Uberflip, Randy Frisch. Ready? Let's talk to the pros. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Content Pros Podcast. We're really excited today. We're joined by Park Howell, host of the Business of Story Podcast. Thanks, Chris. Park, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I mean, that said, I I guess we're kind of all part of a family here. Um, And the family being that the Business of Story is a podcast, as is Content Pros is a podcast living under Convince and Convert, which is Jay Bear's agency play and uh, has a lot of great content coming out of it. So maybe you can t- start by telling us the story of how how your podcast came to be, including your relationship with Jay. <laughs> well, thanks. And thanks for having me here on Content Pros. We are part of a family. So I, I view you guys as the brothers <laughs> I've never met in my life. But I know we're, you know, of a similar mother here. Um, yeah, it's great. I've known Jay for a long time when he was living back here in Arizona. And ironically, about this time last year, his content marketing was working. He had sent out a blog post about how to start up a podcast. And I had attempted one a year or two earlier, and it was just like the Beverly Hillbillies coming to town. I mean, I just had stuff falling off the truck with it, flat tires, and it never went anywhere. But I decided I was going to give it another go, and I just literally just sent him a note, said, hey, you know, Jay, thanks. Your post is very timely. I'm trying to get a podcast up and running on story. And he immediately pinged me back, and he said, whoa, 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 slow down. Maybe we can do this together. And that was the beginning of this great relationship of having business of story as part of the Convince and Convert family of podcasts. And it's it's just been a really fun ride. We launched last July. We immediately uh, hit the top 10 business podcasts and both iTunes and Yahoo. And it's just been a great run ever since. I've learned a lot in the process and I'm hoping I get better with every one of these. That's great. And I know we always talk about relevant and timely content, both internally and on the podcast. So it's it's kind of funny. Our story mirrors that. And I was having a conversation with Jay and just talking about, wouldn't it be great to just interview a bunch of really smart content marketing folks and pull it together for this piece? And then he was like, wait, 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 that could be a podcast. And, you know, that's kind of how this started. It was, uh, I guess, a year prior to your conversation with Jay. So we've been trying to crank along with this and very similar. So for us, I mean, the relevant and timely thing is something I'd love to talk about and how that fits into storytelling, because Definitely finding the right audience. We talk about that quite a bit. We've talked about account-based marketing, but behind all of the principles of great content marketing, I think there has to be a strong story. Oh, you know, without a doubt. And I've got 30 years experience in advertising and marketing. And I got to tell you, when I 
came and really started studying story. It was when our middle son was going to film school over in Chapman University, and now he works in Hollywood as a motion graphics artist, and he's, you know, wants to be a director. Has written his own film, took it to Cannes, France. He's doing everything you got to do as a 28 year old aspiring filmmaker. Um, but when he went to film school, I just said, I want to know what what do they teach you in film school to actually make you successful in Hollywood or help you get there. And that's when I really started studying the side of story. And you know, when you're talking about timely and relevant, in our line of work with business and marketing, it's always about being timely and relevant. But what really surprised me, this added value of studying story that I didn't count on is the personal value that our clients get out of it or the marketers that we work with is once we, I think we go into it with this mindset of this is a commerce tool. We're going to use story structure to help sell more things. But when you really start studying it, you find that this universal structure of story pervades all of our lives. And we find ourselves on these same exact journeys as people, as consumers ourselves, and as well as uh, professionals. So I think the thing that is so powerful about story is, first and foremost, it allows us to really understand who we are and what in the hell we're doing and why we're doing it. And if we don't have an alignment in that, uh, brands really get this aha moment, especially the founders, the origin, the, the originators of these brands. And um, it's not what I intended at all, but I've, people find themselves first within their own stories and then they get expressed through their brands and their content marketing. Um, and it's really an, an alignment thing. Very interesting for, for me anyway. It's interesting as, as you kind of mentioned selling within there. And, and as a brand, we all at the end of the day, we have to think about how we sell some sort of product. And one of the things that uh, our VP of sales here always says is he says, you know, as, as salespeople, we can't try and sell features. We have to sell benefits. Um, and, you know, some of the people look at him, you know, they, they've heard that before and some of them are looking for, for better insights. And he goes, you know, tell a story of what the benefit's going to be. Help someone understand how this product's going to play into their life. And I, I'm wondering, do you have a framework that you kind of deliver to people in business as to how to think of stories? I really do. And, and I start by saying, you know, business to business or B2B marketing is the greatest misnomer that we have out there because businesses don't sell to businesses. We sell to people and we sell to human beings and we sell to very fearful meaning making machines. That's what uh, we're all about. So yeah, definitely about the benefit because someone's trying to figure out how is this process or service going to better my life in my pursuit of whatever it is I'm trying to pursue, which of course in business is sales and customer engagement, that sort of thing. So when we can get them to start thinking like Hollywood, start thinking like Disney, like Pixar, like Spielberg, and really humanize the offering, especially with a professional services firm where it's totally unhumanized. I mean, they're just androids out there, you know, or cyborgs trying to sell stuff because they think it's just features and benefits. And I would take it even further than the benefits. Yeah, it's important to talk about the benefits, but you've got to put it on a very human level. And that's what we do with our story cycle process. It's uh, very quickly a 10-step process that was completely inspired, if not completely lifted, from Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey. And the Hero's Journey is, he also calls it, calls it the monomyth. 
is this universal pattern to story that Joseph Campbell, America's foremost mythologist, who passed away back in 1987, uh, he found this uh, universal structure to story that pervades all religions, crosses all cultural boundaries, been around since the beginning of time. And we see it in the movies we watch and the, the books we read. It is a reflection of life because we experience it ourselves. And so we, I, I took his 17-step process, boiled it down to 10, took some of the nuances out of it that Hollywood and, you know, and writers love to have, but businesses need to be more focused and more pragmatic about and created this story cycle process. And at the heart of it, at the absolute root of it, is the humanization of professional services firms and B2B marketing. I make executives, much to their chagrin, get in touch with who they are and why it is they do what they do, and then sell from that position, not sell from a features and benefits position, but tell stories from the what, what human element is actually connected made bettered and empowered through their services. And that is at the heart of everything we do within the story cycle process. I love that part. And, you know, it's one of the realizations that I've had in my years of marketing. You know, the more we get up there and public speak, right, you try to come up with this amazing story and these impactful points and actionable insights. And the most important thing that has kind of clicked for me is if I don't let people know me when I'm up there, talking to whatever size audience, they're really not resonating with what I say. So the beginning, I, I, I've had this question a few times from event organizers, you know, why do you spend so much time on the intro? Like there's a lot of intro slides, but like I want to get up there and be vulnerable and show, hey, I've been sued over a blog post. Hey, I've been fired from a company. Like these stories that I tell are not just me up here trying to make some impactful presentation. It's actually trying to connect on that human level are you seeing that kind of across the board for businesses and presenters and public speakers? Is that a universal thing from what you've researched and found? Well, it's a universal way thing to connect and build trust with your audiences. So I commend you, Chris, for doing that because it's hard to do and you have to show your vulnerability. But you know what? Everybody loves an underdog. And the one thing about business and us always trying to climb up the corporate ladder and whatever is we can't appear to be underdogs. We have to be overachievers and working nine to five. And it's just baked into our corporate commercialism selling mindset. But when you do what you do exactly like that and show, you know, your frailties, your faults, where you made a misstep. Uh, you absolutely connect with your audiences in the, the greatest way because really what you're trying to do is build empathy with them. And once they have empathy for you, and as long as you don't use it against them, uh, you are the most powerful person in the room. And rightly so because you've been asked to, to speak in front of a crowd and so people want to know your wisdom. But they don't want to know your wisdom until they want until they understand that underdog nature of who you are, what you're about. And my hypothesis on all of this is real quick – our brains, like the amoeba, have, have just one goal in life, and that's survival. We simply use story to create meaning around a chaos that, that is going on around us so that we would know what we would have to do in case something happens to us. So when you are on stage and you are sharing you know, these trials and tribulations you've been through, people in the audience go, oh, that's what he did. Okay, he survived it. How did he survive it? Okay, oh, I can do that. I like this guy. This guy's taught me something. And it's not even going on in their conscious mind. It's totally going on in their subconscious mind. But they're using your stories 
to make sense out of the madness around them so that they would know what to do in case it happens to them. And you are the equivalent of Thog sitting around the fire that just told somebody the saber-toothed tiger hangs out around the, the following bluff. You have saved their lives in a really kind of interesting way. And that's what people in business don't understand when you can be that vulnerable and share those kinds of toils that uh, audiences love it, they appreciate it, and they find trustworthiness in what you have to say. That's great. And it, it makes so much sense to us sitting here. Uh, you know, Chris at Oracle is thinking about story writing all day long, overseeing the content team there. And, and at Uberflip, we're, we're all about storytelling because we help with content too. But maybe you can simplify this for some of the people listening, that that model that you described. Can you give us an example of a brand that's gone beyond product to to be more about story where it's really resonated at the end of the day? You know, um, they're, they're all the famous brands, um, Soundtrite, uh, Patagonia has done a marvelous job with this since their beginning 45 years ago. And they've never, ever uh, strayed away from their story and just sharing it in a very authentic way. Of course, Apple does a really good job. I don't know if they're quite as good now with jobs gone, but they're always really good. But the one I want to talk about that uh, that I think has never really had a tremendous story. It's been all right and it's getting there, but I think did a great job around Thanksgiving time. And that is REI, um, you know, recreational equipment. When they did their opt out campaign around Black Friday, that Friday right after uh, uh, Thanksgiving and said, and as a matter of fact, we're going to close all of our stores. So we don't want your money on Black Friday. We want you to literally opt outside, get outdoors and enjoy life. And then the way they spun that story worked, and I don't mean spin in a bad way. I, let me let me say the way they wove, weaved, how do you use that word? They weaved that story through all of their work, both online, offline, how they worked with and communicated with their employees, the closing of their stores, and then their masterful job of what they did with content marketing around that. I think they did a, a terrific job of really putting a flag in the ground of what their story stands for. And that's, you know, for the great outdoors and for the the individual expression of get outside your cubicle, get outside your corporate life and go have some fun. What will be interesting to me to see now is how do they continue that story? How do they serialize it through the rest of the work? I haven't seen a lot since then, but I, I'm curious how they're going to uh, you know, build a campfire around that again in this next Thanksgiving and build from that. But I, to me, that's been one of the most impressive examples of storytelling, both online and off for a brand in, in the last year. I want to dig in a little more there, Park, but I thought that was a great opportunity to introduce what Randy and his team are doing at Uberflip with their new podcast. It's called Flip the Switch, but it's a weekly podcast where they get some of the brightest marketing minds together to get useful insights, actionable takeaways, and find a fresh approach to content marketing challenges. Now, the reason I, this appealed to me with the REI story, I think they're trying to turn ordinary things into remarkable. So that's the flip the switch moment. And you can find that at uberflip.com slash podcast to learn from what other marketers are doing to kind of make that pivot into remarkable. Now, the, the REI story, I think that's an amazing one. And there was a ton of press around it because it was so different. And I think everyone is looking at Black Friday as one of the biggest sales days of the year and how do we maximize our website and you know what are we going to do to create more e-commerce transactions all the business metrics that start to go forward with us there but the piece i'm wondering about is what does that internal story look like how do you kind of pitch that 
to executives that may be looking at the metrics and saying, okay, look, do you understand we made this many million dollars last year on Black Friday? Like, (laughs) what do you think that looked like to kind of bring in that, I guess, essentially the essence of the brand and say, this is what we stand for. But I'm curious how you would have handled that inside the doors. Yeah, I, uh, you know you're going to have to overcome that uh, objection right there of they made X millions of dollars on that Black Friday. But so I think you have to bring out the canary in the coal mine of what's happening online, what's happening with consumer behavior, with millennial insights towards brands, and the fact that the brands really no longer own their stories like they used to, that uh, that they have to be very careful. Brands truly are story makers and allow their customer customers to become the storytellers. And I think what you need to do is simply show them by this one act and really backing it up and being honest and truthful about why you're doing this, which I think REI did a good job with, that you have to demonstrate to your shareholders, stakeholders, what it's going to mean for added revenue in the future, added brand value, and really continuing to uh, create a differentiator in the marketplace for REI in a very crowded marketplace. Uh, And I think that's how you got to play it. You've got to get away from the hard revenue numbers and look at what's happening in our environment these days being um, our communications environment and our purchasing environment and the mindsets of customers. And this isn't about owning them for that day at the uh, cash register, but it's owning their hearts throughout the rest of the year. I think that's how I would approach it. So, Park, I, th- I think that's a great point. I'm just wondering who in the organization needs to be responsible for holding people accountable to these stories. And you know, I'm sure it's going to depend on the on the you know type of story and and part of the organization. But maybe you can give some examples where you've seen that seen through from beginning to end from an ownership perspective. Yeah, I think the person that is ultimately responsible is the wiseacre that came up with the idea in the first place presumably coming out of marketing. Maybe it's customer service. Maybe there's a combination of that. But it has to come together pretty quickly. And of course, I think at REI, they use three or four different outside agencies, PR and advertising-wise, to help them pull together that whole concept from what I read in the paper. Um, so they've got to own it internally. And then, you know, that guy, whoever that person is that, that came up with the idea, has to get buy-in throughout the C-suite. And they've got to get people on board. And that's a story in and of itself because all of these people are living into that story. It's not just a marketing campaign anymore. What they've really done in in any brand doing this is when they come out with something as bold as the opt-out side campaign is they essentially are creating a clearing for the brand to establish a new story to live into. Now, a brand can do this you know, in more than just one area. They can have a couple, three different narratives working through this. But in their case, they have now put this, this stake in the ground, and they have to have everybody live into it. So the, uh, the marketing department, first and foremost, has to be accountable for it. But then it goes to C-suite. I mean, customer service, customer relations, uh, the retail operations folks, they all have to buy in and then live into this and make sure that this story is expressed throughout the brand. I've got an interesting insight. Now, this is not um, an outreach effort, but we did some work with Coca-Cola back in 2010, and it was an internal campaign with them in Atlanta. What they were trying to do is green their uh, fleet, their fleet drivers, and their whole fleet department is 60,000 people. I think roughly about 40,000 drivers and 20,000 support 
techs, support staff. We worked with a, a, a company here in Phoenix called Eco Driving Solutions that was brought in to do all the online and the customer or the, the uh, fleet training in classroom training and the online training to do it. And Coca-Cola came, we came along with the package to help them with branding it and communicating this internally. And what we found was interesting is as we talked about the campaign, and even though it was already uh, approved within the organization, we needed to arm the different, the, the person who is heading it up, who is ultimately responsible for the eco-driving program within it, with the stories that they needed to share with the different C-level suite folks. So, of course, when we were talking to the financial people, it was all not about greening the fleet, but it was about all the fuel that they were going to save and the maintenance costs they were going to save. When we were talking to the CSR folks. It was time we talked about the public relations that can be associated with this campaign and that Coca-Cola can go out and say, look, we're doing our part to green the fleet. Um, everybody in that organization had a different role to play and they all had to be accountable to it in one way, shape or form, but they had to buy in first. If we didn't get buy in from all those sea level lieutenants, then there was going to be problems, you know, uh, within the overall campaign. So we were able to do that by telling them, shifting the story. The same story remained the same around eco-driving solutions, what it would do for them. First and foremost, save them money by saving them fuel and reducing their their uh, green, you know, their carbon footprint. We launched that program. And, and by the way, we needed to also get in, in the heads of the drivers out there. And you can imagine the independent, fierce loyalty of the drivers. They're saying, who are you to come in my cab and tell me how to drive? And we had to make sure that it didn't look like it was too much of a green tree hugging effort, too. So it all went back telling the story about, look, at when you follow these prescriptive driving measures, you are going to save your division and this company a great deal of money. And we've worked and played off of their loyalty and their pride. And I can tell you we had to do a 30-day launch to that. But we got everybody on board, and then once they actually started doing the training and enacted the program at Coke, their goal was for a 3% uh, decrease in fuel. And within the first quarter alone, they had experienced a 6% decrease. That's what kind of buy-in we got around the, their eco-driving program. And I think it goes back to that one person owned it, literally, in that huge organization, it came down to one individual that owned it. She believed in it. We helped her fashion the brand and story around it, and then we helped her position it with all the different C-level folks in the organization to get them to bless it. And then, of course, our biggest hurdle was to uh, work with those drivers and uh, make sure that they understood we weren't invading their cab space. We were just trying to empower them and show them another, maybe better way to go about their business that was good for everybody involved in the, in the Coke environment. Park, I think as marketers, we're a fairly cynical bunch of people. <laughs> fairly? <laughs> fairly. I, I, I am known for sarcasm. Now, wait a minute. Are so you the sarcastic just, speaker? I think that says that yes, on your uh, your LinkedIn. That's bio, right? me. Okay. I, I have to put the disclaimer in there just so no one gets offended. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think we have a history of branding things as kind of fluffy buzzwords and terms. And I know that storytelling some people view that with a stigma and it may be lack of understanding. It may be that they've worked in organizations where it's 100% metric driven and they've kind of been beaten into submission. But if you had a bunch of content marketers in the room and you could kind of impart your learnings from extensive research, tons of experience, running a podcast where you're talking to people about storytelling every single week, if not every day, what would you say to them? Because I, I know that I've had discussions recently where 
literally that was the discussion. It was like, well, look, people may say storytelling is fluffy, but if we don't tell the right story and it's not consistent across all of our brands, like we are going to fall on our own sword. And it's literally that type of a discussion. But what would you say to those who may kind of group storytelling as a marketing buzzword? Well, I'm glad you asked that, Chris, because I will be addressing this very thing, this very thing at social media marketing world in San Diego. So, and I'm looking forward to it. It's my first time presenting there and it'll be about story and around uh, digital storytelling. Here's been my experience with it. And I really, you know, after 30 years, I started this in 2005, 2006. And man, I am just completely all in on it because I'm fascinated by how it works on our minds and um, how literally we're hardwired for it. Here's the challenge we see. So in the last 10 years, storytelling became the soup du jour of all creative agencies. We're great storytellers. We'll tell stories on your behalf. And it became this buzzword that quickly lost its gravitas because everybody was talking about it. Now, they're not wrong in saying that because as paid professionals, we literally are all should be paid storytellers. We do it on behalf of our clients who, for whatever reason, uh, feel like they don't have the chops or they don't have the guts to tell the stories that they need to tell. So they hire folks like us and agencies and so forth. So that right there made it a gimmick because everybody's talking about it. Where we took a little bit deeper is instead of saying, look, we're, we're good storytellers. That's the price of admission in our line of work. It's like being smart brain surgeons. You know, no brain surgeon differentiates themselves on their, their smarts because that's just the cost of entry. So being good storytellers is the cost of entry. What we do then is teach these executives how to do it. And it, it plays against a stereotype they will see of either this sort of young, brash, digital content marketer that will come up with all these crazy ideas and, hey, I'm a storyteller, let me do my thing, or the old guy with the gray hair and the Peabody glasses that stands up there in front of the crowd with his vest on and talks about storytelling, you know, around the campfire, that kind of thing, which I think is, it distances us from what it's actually about, and what it's actually about is connecting with people on a very human level in a very subconscious level. When you tell a story in the right way with the right structure to it, which is as simple literally as setup, problem, solution. That's all you have to know about storytelling. Setup, problem, solution. You engage this ancient reptilian brain of ours. It says, oh, you've got my attention. Now don't bore the crap out of me. Give me something interesting. Give me something funny. But whatever you do, give me something that has a moral or a meaning to it. So this is not rocket science. It's just that we were all at the tops of our storytelling games in kindergarten in our educational systems, cultural environments, political correctness has silenced our innate storyteller. Now, when you really see the light bulb go on is when you work with somebody who's a pretty rotten presenter in the corporate realm, and you help them get their story straight through a PowerPoint presentation, and they get up, get up to present their PowerPoint presentation, and they're still pretty rotten presenters, just because it's, you know, it's not, not everyone is gifted with the ability to present. However, when you then wrap that presentation with some basic fundamental story structures in how they structure the presentation, the images they use at key points, and the messages that bring the audience in their subconscious up levels and drop them down levels, that you will see amazing things in the way of audience members coming up to these people and saying, wow, I don't know what you're doing, but that's the best presentation I've ever seen you make. 
even when you're sitting there going, oh my God, that presentation has a long way to go. That to me underscored the power of structure and story structure in all the work we do. It's almost like the lipstick on a pig. If you've got a message that isn't that great and you're not very good as, you know, at execution, if you follow some basic story structure premise of setup, problem, solution, it is amazing the impact you can have on people and how you can still how how you can move them to action. Now, add to that, you know, interesting stories like you were talking about about things that you went through, you know, in your life to help you level up to where you are today. Or, you know, you're on Twitter. I, a couple of weeks ago, I had the pleasure of interviewing Eric Munn of the Onion Labs, their internal agency. And he talks about the three steps to stories um, online, starting with a really powerful visual that has a story in its own right, a headline that's funny that backs up that story, and then a call to action that brings it all full circle. You really start seeing these magical elements of story come to play uh, and have tremendous impact on it. And it's, I, sh- I guess I shouldn't say magical because we are all hardwired for this. It's the way we are biologically set up. I often say story is as important to our brains for survival as oxygen is to our lungs. There's just no two ways about it. That's a great way to think about it, Park. I, you know, one of the things before we go further, I want to I want to also mention we talked at the beginning about, you know, your podcast, our podcast are all part of the Convince and Convert family, and there's another great asset that I want people to take a look at, especially as they're thinking about storytelling and knowing what stories are going to resonate in that moment. Take a look at Definitive. It's an email that you can get on a daily basis from Convince and Convert. You can get it by going to definitivedigest.com and you'll get delivered to you some of the best resources about a topic in that moment. Uh, Really in that moment, that way we can tell the right stories that we want to go out there with. And, uh, you know, one of the last things I want to come back to is this idea of what is the right length of a story? Because we've, we've kind of been talking about people's attention and you, know, you were just alluding to before that sometimes you can get, a long, get away with a very long story as long as it has that right format. But I'm wondering if, if you're seeing people condense stories now today, given our attention span, given the amount of content out there, and what is that right length of story for us to use in business on a day-to-day basis to keep people involved in, in that in that engagement with us? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I don't know how many times I've been asked to go into a client and they'll say, Park, we need an eight-minute video. And I'm like, why? <laughs> what do you mean, eight-minute video? What is it you're trying to say and, and uh, what do you want people to do? So I guess the right length comes down to what channel are you in? If you're Vine, the right length is six seconds. If you're in Instagram, it might be 15 seconds if you're using video in this case. YouTube, a minute to two to three minutes, depending on how compelling your content is. Now, if you are sending out an email or a solicitation letter, it found that longer, more involved stories are better. Uh, so it plays against, you know, what we hear, the fact that a, a goldfish now has a longer attention span than the human being, you know, in our attention economy today. So I don't know if I would look at it as to what's the right length. There is no right length in my mind. How succinctly can you tell a story that really triggers an emotion within a person, builds empathy, you know, gets them involved to where they're buying with their heart and then they justify that purchase with their heads? That's what it all comes down to. If you can do that on a napkin at a bar trying to land a piece of business, that's how long your story needs to be. If, uh, 
if you know you are um, you know a, a, a blogger like I am and like we all are that uh, I like to write the short ones because they're easier. But you know, listen to HubSpot; they're saying, "Man, you got to sprinkle in some long ones." You know, the twelve to fifteen hundred word epics in in um, you know the online world. I don't. So I don't know that there is not an answer. I think it comes back to what are you trying to say? What channel are you trying to say it on? And we have to let the environments of those channels help dictate how long that piece has to be. Now, I know I'm just about ready to go into production next week on 10 short videos, one minute videos, and each one covers one step of the story cycle process so someone can see it and easily digest it. And they go, oh, okay, I've got the basic understanding. I can take out a, a piece of paper and a pencil and write this down and I can get them through their position, promise, personality, and purpose and all that. And in meeting with Jay just the other day when he was out here in town, I was telling him about the process and he gave me that aha moment. He said, okay, well then also do one in 15 seconds that you can put up on Instagram. And I hadn't thought about it at the time, but again, it's dictating how long my piece needs to be, not my story. So um, I think that's that's the best way to view it. Shorter is always better. Shorter is always sweeter when you can pull it off. But that's always really, really difficult. Thanks for all the insights, Park. Tons of great stuff we've learned today. And I think with our last question, we'll give you the opportunity to tell a story. So we like to ask this to every single person, but we always ask, what did you want to be when you grew up? So it may tie in directly to what you're doing now. It may not, but we'll leave that to you. <laughs> what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I still mess around with this, but I'm not even closely there, is I wanted to be a composer of music um, uh, movies, you know, for uh, um, soundtracks. I was fascinated as a kid with audio. And this is back when, you know, the, you, you didn't, you had little tape recorders that were really crappy, but they were great. And I got one for Christmas and I loved it. And uh, I, my friend and I would do play, <clears throat> excuse me, do plays on this tape recorder and play it for people and they'd crack up. And then I would do, you know, my own music. I would write and record onto this crappy little cassette player. And I still have some of the cassettes from it. And I went through high school, very into music, played the piano, went to college to study music composition and theory. And uh, there was also in the promotion side of life. And I really thought I would like to be either a writer, composer of music for movies or, you know, soundtracks or a producer of, of music and such. And I did a little bit of that in my 20s and just didn't really take off. So I had to go where I could actually make a living. And that was in the advertising marketing world. Uh, but in this next chapter, I might sneak back over there and do a little bit of music composition for movies here. That's that's what I ultimately wanted to do. I love that. I think it's really interesting, too, because there are certain movies and even Netflix original content where songs very much make the scene in a TV mm -hmm. show or in a movie. So I, I definitely think that does tie into the storytelling. Yeah, yeah, I love it. And, you know, my favorite movie of all time is Amadeus. I probably watched it 10 times because uh, I love Mozart. I love his work. The first true rock musician, you know, starting in his time back in the day. Uh, but that movie in particular, the way they married the story around a great composer and the music that they used within it, of course, his great music, um, and then how they shared it with the audiences of learning what went into his craft and, and what was he thinking when he was creating these marvels. Uh, to me, is just one of my, my favorite all-time movies, especially as it's related to music. 
Great, great recommendation there. So we don't always get a movie recommendation in every episode. So this is good. <laughs> there you go. That and Animal House, you know. You there there you go. Yeah. <laughs> and if you want a Netflix original show, I can give you some of those. I've I've been hooked on the original content lately. Oh, but great. Thanks so much for your time, Park. This is a great show. On behalf of Randy Frisch from Uberflip, I am Chris Moody from Oracle Marketing Cloud. You've been listening to the Content Pros Podcast. Hopefully you know that by now if you've made it this far. You can find more at contentprospodcast.com. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, anywhere you like to get your podcasts. Please do let us know how you like the show. Feel free to leave a review if you have a free 30 seconds, and we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for joining. Thanks for tuning in to Content Pros. Please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast listening app. Go to contentprospodcast.com for a complete show archive and greatest hits. Content Pros is sponsored by Convince & Convert, Oracle Marketing Cloud, and by Uberflip, and is produced by Convince & Convert Media. Find more great shows like Content Pros at marketingpodcast.com, the first search engine for marketing podcasts.